these fan magazines were essentially extensions of studio publicity departments. They worked hand in hand together to formulate stories about stars to create cohesive personas that were easily digestible and consumable for uh, audiences. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's an all-authors episode. Rob Stone has a Kickstarter for a book about a short-lived studio that launched one immortal career. And two books about the making of female stars. Olympia Kiriakou on how little Jane Alice Peters became Carol Lombard. And Howard Hughes made her notorious. Christina Rice tells how Jane Russell made herself an actress. If you're looking for a full-figured podcast, subscribe to Nitrateville Radio and leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Vim. I get it from my breakfast cereal, along with pep and stick to But for silent comedy buffs, Vim is a minor studio that lasted a couple of years in the teens, mainly remembered for a kid who got his start there, Oliver Babe Hardy. The world may not have been waiting for a book on the Vim studio, but now it can be yours. Rob Stone, author of Laurel or Hardy, a study of the solo careers of that great comedy team, uses Vim to explore what a comedy studio was like in that era. The book is called Pokes and Jabs, the before, during, and after of the Vim Films Corporation. And the title comes from the studio's top team at the time, Bobby Burns, or Pokes, and Walter Stull, or Jabs. The Kickstarter for the book is running now. We last spoke to Rob Stone way back in episode 4 about Mostly Lost. Here he tells us why it's worth digging into the history of the long-forgotten Vim. Vim comedies, you know, for some of us that are really into the esoteric are are kind of a a special company because for one thing, Babe Hardy came out of that that company. I mean, he he had worked before them, but I think his 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 first known work was this, the plump of plump and run, <laughs> and he had, and he at one point had said that he the happiest times he had making films were the the year the years that he was in Jacksonville, Florida, working for Vim, and uh, you see any of the kind of the behind the scenes shots they they do seem to be kind of a happy bunch of people. Um, I know Randy Scredman has a, a scrapbook of Babe Hardy's, and there's a lot of 
pictures of them out on the beach and you know, socializing. And it was just kind of one big happy family and one big bunch of fun. And so, you know, that company always interested me. And I, of course, wrote about Plump and Run, you know, a decade or two, a couple decades ago when I wrote uh, Laurel or Hardy. Um, but, you know, that was only like 35 films of what, you know, had, it was in the hundreds of films that this, this company in one iteration or the other made. And so I just, I just got interested in it. I, I like the esoteric and the, the, the undiscovered. I mean, along with my colleague, Rachel Delgadio, we basically have created a whole workshop <laughs> called right. mostly lost. That's all about esoteric and, and trying to make things less esoteric by discovering what they are. The, the one thing is back then, film companies came and went, I mean, faster than you could blink. And, uh, you know, so I, I just, in, in a way, this I, it's a big word to say it's a case study, but it's, it, it is a look at one of those companies that kind of rose up, was there for a year or two, and then disappears again. Um, I call it pokes and jabs because uh, them started out actually as wizard comedies, which were created when uh, uh, an executive at Reliance, a guy named Lewis Burston, got together with Walter Stoll and Bobby Burns, who had been at Lubin, and they they uh, went out on their own to to make these series of films, and they called their characters pokes and jabs. Well, they did, you know, eight or so of those films for Wizard, and then they got a better deal, and they created a different company called Vim. And when they had Vim, they became pretty successful pretty quick. They started a second company, which was Pump and Runt, and eventually. Uh, they attempted a third company with uh, Marcel Perez, but he left quickly. But then they get a third company with um, Harry Myers and Rosemary Phoebe. And so it was a pretty, pretty, you know, for about a year or so, there was a pretty hustle and bustle in the entity. Yeah, I mean, the f- I have to admit, I the first I ever heard of this company was somebody was showing the uh, Laurel or Hardy, you know, a couple of the Laurel or Hardy films in, uh, I guess it was last year's Portnoni Festival. And so we had, we had, uh, is it Billy Ruge? I, I used to always say Billy Ruge, but it's actually Rudge. Rudge. If, if every once in a while it's misspelled R-U-D-G-E, oh. but, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's pronounced Rudge. Okay. Anyway, Billy Rudge, sort of the, the Pete Best of Laurel and Hardy, because uh, he was teamed with <laughs> teamed with Oliver Hardy for a while, um, and yeah. didn't quite click the same way. Though they, it, you know, what I what I saw, they weren't bad films for the teens. You know, um, he 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 has its moment, his moments, but he has very few moments. Okay. Um, at at um, spring with with. Wizard and all the way through them. I don't think he lasted till Jackson, but uh, Billy Bletcher worked for the company, and and his wife Arlene Roberts always felt like Billy Bletcher should have been run, not Billy Rudge, and and there would be an argument that that was that should have been, or there was another kind of slight comedian, you know, small guy named Bert Tracy, who would have been a perfect runt to babe to Babe's plump. He was British, and so in the nineteen when and Stan toured. England in the forties and fifties, he, he was their dresser. You know, he, he, they, they remained friends for a long time. And Bert Tracy wrote a lot of the films and stuff. So yeah, it was kind of, kind of an odd pairing of the two. Um, 
Uh, Billy Rudge was already in his 50s by the time they paired the two of them together. Uh, I, I think there are some really, really good Vim comedies. And if we're talking plump and run, there's some really good ones. And then there's some that are not so good. But if you're if you're a Laurel and Hardy fan, you can't help but looking at Babe Hardy and and just seeing the kind of the embryonic version of of Ollie. Some somebody posted the other day on on Facebook or something about some film in the the mid to late twenties. Oh, that was the first time Babe Hardy looked at the camera, and I go, "You got to be kidding me!" <laughs> you know, he 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 had been doing that almost from the get go. And so you can you can look at these films and you can see bits and pieces of, of of what he was to become, and you know in 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 fairness, if you watch a bunch of comedies from that era, um, you know he's not on, he's he's not standing toe to toe with with Fatty Arbuckle, right? But he's standing he's standing pretty tall against a lot of these guys, <laughs> you know. Um, he 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 did have he did have a bit of a. Um, a presence about them. So, um, and, and so that's the hook. The hook is, is Bay Party and the Vim comedies. But if you start watching a lot of the other ones, um, you know, pokes and jabs were, were cool. Bobby Burns, uh, he, he was so acrobatic that uh, some of those pokes and jabs are pretty, pretty cool because he is just, he just does things that you could never believe a human being could do. Um, and then, and then the Myers and Thebes came along were kind of a, kind of a poor man's Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew kind of film, but they would, uh, Harry Myers would build these surrealistic sets and, um, and they were kind of offbeat films, but they were, they were interesting. They, they were interesting to see and, and did kind of, were more situational comedy like the, like the Drews were. But, um, you know, it, it's just, the, the whole idea was to, to dig into a bunch of films and, and talk about them and bring a little bit more attention to them. And, uh, I, I happened to chose, you know, I chose a company to do in, in this case. And I, I know there's been, uh, some recent books, some really good recent books on, on some companies. Um, you know, um, I think Tom, Thomas reader, just his century comedies book just came out. And, uh, you know, before that he did, he did the Learman book, which was about a person, not about a company. Um, and, and, you know, I, others have done that too, but I, I, this, this time I chose to do a company, not a personality, uh, like I did the first time, but, um, that's kind of why I did it. Cause I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have, I have, I have no interest. <clears throat> I would, as much as I love Laurel and Hardy, I would never in my life have ever written a Laurel and Hardy book. Because there's to me there's no sense going going back over the same ground something that's been done and I happen to be you know, I happen to have been friends with Randy Scredbert since we were both teenagers in Orange County California so for sure I wasn't going to do a Laurel and Hardy book ever not, not with not with what he's done um, but you know that you know again that's my, that's my interest. Um, you know, kind of, kind of I, I do the acquisitions for the Library of Congress and I acquire all kinds of things. But uh, one of the things I'm always looking for is is uh, short comedies from the teens and twenties because it's just it's just an area of film history that particularly interests me. So. Yeah, and the, there's sort of an inexhaustible supply, I, I suspect. Well, there there is, and you know, and you can you watch some things and you go. 
how in the world did those guys, why, how did they get, you know, I can see somebody giving them money to make the first one. And how did they ever get anyone to give them money to make the second one? Um, but, but, you know, if you look at um, some of the, some of the things that under crank productions in cooperation with the library guys, um, has put out like the Marcel Perez sets or the Musty Supper. Again, these are guys that people really didn't know about, but Ben Modell went to the trouble of, you know, with our help, digging into the archive and really finding some of these gems and bringing them out. And, um, you know, if you watched enough Marcel Perez, you, you, you might start debating where, where on the list he should be. Um, as far as the great, you know, greats versus not great. Well, let's talk about uh, Burns and Stull specifically. Who were they? The story kind of starts with Walter Stull, who who played jabs. And Walter Stull was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was studying to be a telegraph operator, um, but he couldn't keep himself from going over to the theater and watching these different productions. And uh, he finally talked somebody into letting him... Uh, appear on stage with their, with their stock company because he apparently had the ability to kind of learn everybody's part. So he kind of initially with this, you know, so-and-so sick, Stone, get out there. You know, so <laughs> he, he was kind of, he, but, but he very quickly became a little bit of a matinee idol. Around 1908, he decides to go out on his own. He has the, the Walter H. Stone stock company. He does that for a couple of years. A guy, a guy who used to be his his stage manager and part time actor was a guy named Harry Myers, who had gone to work making movies for Lubin, and Lubin was a Philadelphia based company. And so Stoll slipped into making movies for for um, Lubin. Meanwhile, <laughs> um, Bobby Burns, who had been born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, got into stage work and he he was in the uh, uh, original cast of of babes in toyland and then was in, in that cast when it toured but he also was in the in the the first roadshow company of uh Lister of oz the montgomery and stone play but he was very acrobatic so the, the big thing was him and, and later in life he did a lot of gorilla work he was so acrobatic that he he ended up even though he was never quite a lead in any of those plays, he, he got a lot of notice because he kind of stole the show. And he, I guess, you know, um, kind of got tired of, of being on the road. He went home to Philadelphia, and he kind of slipped slipped in with Lubin. And so then you had, you know, Walter Stoll and Bobby Burns and George Ream making movies at, at Lubin with May Hoadley as the star and, May Hoadley's husband as the director, and so probably at some point um, they they thought they're, they're probably not going to get star status as long as the as long as the current star is sleeping with the director. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's what led to, to to Wizard and to to them and to, to Jackson, and you know Bobby Burns ended up working um, into the 30s and 40s. He's in a number of Laurel and Hardy movies. Again, did a lot of the, you know, if you see an ape in the 1930s, chances are it's Bobby Burns in the costume playing the character. Um, he worked as a gag man for, for a number of companies. Stoll, on the other hand, uh, when uh, the Jackson comedies ended in late 1917, he, he 
he'd had enough. He went back home to Philadelphia and ran, ran his father-in-law's business for the next 20 years. But, you know, there were just a couple, couple like so many guys that were doing stage work and then just kind of evolved into the movies. Now, I had, had they both been born in Des Moines, Iowa, and that's where they went home after they'd been in vaudeville, they may have never made a movie. I think what was helpful to them was the fact that Lubin was in Philadelphia. And, you know, Lubin was one of the, 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 the big producers. They were part of, they were part of the whole trust with Edison. But so there was, so there was kind of a, just a natural place for these guys to be when they went home to Philadelphia. And if you, if you start looking at how many different comedians from the era came from Philadelphia, there's a bunch of them. So are there two different books that are coming out? Cause it looked like you were, uh, doing a book of pictures as well well you know as as one does with 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 kickstarter you try to throw in a a little bit of a value added to get people to to toss in a bit more and um i'm really fortunate in that um particular sections of the book uh i have more stills than i can use i don't know if you know joe eckert he recently did a book on dan mason and he uh, had all of Dan Mason's photos. And Dan Mason worked for a company that, well, he worked for Eastern. And Eastern eventually released his films as, as Jackson comedies, um, even though they'd been made years before. But so I had a lot of stills there. Um, Bob Burchard, you know, about a year or so before he passed away, sent me a bunch of stills he had. And, Randy Scredvitz allowed me access to the Vim scrapbook he has, and there's there's just a lot there's a lot of photographs. There's some really cool um, at trade ads and some of those kind of things that that won't make the book. The movies being what they are, there's not a lot you can say about some of them. And there's some where I have you know half a page entry about the book and eight pictures. You you got to have a balance. So the second book is just kind of a fun thing of, of you know, I, all, all the pictures that weren't fit to print, not not fit from a moral standpoint, <laughs> fit from a physical standpoint. Sure, they would not fit. Um, all right, so the the Kickstarter this will be after its launch, so that will have launched on September fifteenth. You say how long is it running? Oh, you know, I I. I guess I put it for the sixty days because it's I'm 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 a Kickstarter virgin, so I, I don't um, I, I I do I I am very fortunate that um, Ben Model is a good friend of mine, um, so he's you know walking me through some of this. So um, I probably will leave it up for sixty days, not knowing um, there's a pretty good track history now with Ben and. Some other people's like people like Ed Ed Luso and some others where there's they've got a kind of track record on the DVD Blu-ray realm of Kickstarter. Not not a ton of books, so um, I'm really hopeful that that uh, people will will uh, jump on and help out. Uh, but but you know, it is a little bit of a of an unknown at the moment. So I probably I'm at least this time I'm going to leave it up for a while to. Give everybody a chance. So, can you see these films anywhere? Any of them? Well, actually, you can. Um, 
the the there are some, as you mentioned, on the Laurel or Hardy disc that um, uh, came out from Flickr Alley in, in cooperation with the Library of Congress, which was the American version of what came out in um, Europe by Lobster and the Library of Congress. Uh, and uh, with, with, with liner notes by yours truly, um, I, I co-curated the set. Um, so there's some there. You can find some on, on I, I believe you can find a few on the, the earlier Stan Laurel collection or Oliver Hardy collection that Kino put out, the Slapstick Symposium. I, I know the, the chalk line, which is a Myers and Thebe that was recently restored by the National Film Preservation Board, is, is going up on their website within the next month or so with, with a score by Ben Modell. But yeah, but the films can be seen. You know, the, probably the pokes and jabs are are not as unfortunately as read, ready to see as the plump and runs because they party, so you see the plump and runs. But the others, the others are around and hopefully will be around more. I'm, I'm doing the book, and I'm you know hope, hopeful that there may be a DVD Blu-ray down the line, either from me or from someone else. Um, I wanted I wanted to get the book done first because the book took the longest time to do. One of the things I really like about doing these kind of books is it, there's a lot of archaeology involved. You know, there was there was 25 years ago there was no definitive Laurel and Hardy solo film filmography, and there certainly is no definitive Plump and Run uh, or I mean Pokes <laughs> and Dabs filmography. I'm kind of I'm kind of excited to see where this goes. It's a whole different world too, though. You know, I I um, I'm self-publishing this book. I self-published my other book, but back then, man, you you know you 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 couldn't do it the same way you do it now. Right. First off, there wasn't there wasn't any way of having people you know other than you writing a letter to a buddy and say, hey, can you spare a couple bucks? <laughs> right. There was no way to get like-minded people or interested people involved in a monetary way. And I mean, that's the cool thing about Kickstarter is that you, you can do that. And, you know, in one sense, people are helping with the project. In another sense, they're, they're kind of just pre-ordering the book. But either way, it, it's, you know, we've seen some really cool stuff coming out because Kickstarter has, has been around to, to facilitate that. So, so it's a whole new, whole new realm for me. I'm a little, I'm excited about it. Um, the, the idea here is to not make this the, 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 the first and only um once we see how well the kickstarter goes they're um they're actually i there's um at least two more books coming within the next year or so one one written by somebody else about somebody else and uh once i get this this in you know this particular baby to bed i will be doing a quick um uh, or not so quick uh, revision of my laurel or hardy book it's starting to get a little old need a bit of a refresh um, and, I, and we're, we're, there's a couple other books down the line, so it, it, it's something we, we're looking to do more than just this once. So.
Links for the Kickstarter for Pokes and Jabs, the before, during, and after of the Vim Films Corporation, and examples of the studio's work will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Yeah, yeah, let me sock you just once, just once on the jaw, and I don't care what happens. Where are you going? It's been ringing ten minutes. Let it ring, it's Mr. Jaffe. He can stand there pushing that bell till he rots. Remember the last time he tried to keep him out? He had fits. Fits? I'll give him fits. Plenty of them. <laughs> Cornelia thought she was going to win and you pushed her in a pile of ashes. <laughs> you think you could follow a intelligent conversation for just a moment? I'll try. No, that's fine. Do you mind telling me just what a scavenger hunt is? Well, a scavenger hunt is exactly like a treasure hunt. Except in a treasure hunt, you try to find something you want. And in a scavenger hunt, you try to find something that nobody wants. Like a forgotten man. That's right. And the one that wins gets a prize. Only there really is no prize. It's just the honor of winning because all the money goes to charity. That is, if there's any money left over, but then there never is. Sweetheart, the dress stinks. You're only afraid I'm running away with the sea. I afraid? Why should I be? No, of course not. You're the greatest actor in the world. Everybody knows that, including you. Don't be a prima donna. Whenever there's a chance to take the spotlight away from me, it's becoming ridiculous the way you grab attention. Whenever I start to tell a story, you finish it. If I go on a diet, you lose the weight. If I have a cold, you cough. And if we should ever have a baby, I'm not so sure I'd be the mother. Noir wouldn't be noir without Bogart. Horror exists in the lurching shadow of Karloff. And screwball comedy is defined by the manner and voice of Carol Lombard, who brought a manic energy and otherworldliness to comedy between the sexes. But how did she become the person who defined a genre? That's what Dr. Olympia Kiriakou, who teaches at the School of Communication and Media Studies at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, explores in her book, Becoming Carol Lombard, Stardom, Comedy, and Legacy, from Bloomsbury Academic Press. I started by asking her, why becoming Carol Lombard? Well, this book really takes um, a deep dive into the evolution of Carol Lombard's star persona over the course of, a, I'd say, just over a 20-year period. She was born Jane Alice Peters in Indiana, um, and I track the uh, the development of her career and her star persona from basically the 1920s through 1942, which is the year she died. And over the course of that period, she, as my book title says, she becomes Carol Lombard, the, the screwball star that people uh, know and love. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, you're doing a lot of this through tracing what's in the fan magazines and acknowledge that mm -hmm. There's no telling how much, if anything, is true that you're reading, you know, or to what extent they're just making up stuff or doing what the studio wants them to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, whenever you read fan magazine articles, especially from that, uh, the Costco Hollywood era, everything with a little bit of a grain of salt. Uh, these fan magazines were essentially extensions of studio publicity departments. They worked hand-in-hand hand together to formulate stories about stars to create cohesive personas that were easily digestible and consumable for uh, audiences. So whenever, during uh, my research, whenever I was reading something about Carol Lombard's, you know, quote-unquote, authentic screwball persona and how she was 
you know, off screen identical to, you know, some of the characters uh, that we're familiar with on screen, you know, you have to really consider why the story uh, type of story like that was being printed uh, and, uh, you know, what type of effect those types of stories were, were to have on audiences and readers at the time. So I think you always have to sort of be a little critical when you engage with those types of resources as a researcher. Is there anything about her that you can regard as a genuine primary source and not having passed through the publicity mill? Unfortunately not. She never wrote an, she never wrote a memoir. She didn't have a diary as far as I know, at least if, if there is one, it's, you know, lost uh, to time. Um, I think the closest you could get really is just secondhand, um, uh, you know, interviews from the people that actually knew her. So for example, her secretary, Jean Garceau, uh, she published a book not long after Clark Gable died in 1961, um, but aside from that, really, no, nothing firsthand, unfortunately. And so that's why, you know, my book, I I don't necessarily focus on Carol Lombard, the private person. I look, um, I, I was interested more in uh, exploring her public image and her work, because you'll never know Carol Lombard, the woman, right? So you right. have to sort of focus on what we do have available. Though, of course, we can just watch Gable and Lombard, which is completely true. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's a very accurate, uh, biopic. Yeah. That... <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's start with her career then. Yeah. She's growing up in Indiana, but they moved to Los Angeles. Any reason why they, they <laughs> moved out there in the first place? Uh, so her parents, they separated, they never officially got divorced, but I think, um, her father, prior to Carol being born, he suffered um, a very serious accident, and I think that left him with uh, ongoing um, physical and, I think, some emotional issues. And he became, I think, a little bit maybe verbally at least abusive towards her mom. Um, so I think she wanted to sort of separate herself and her children from that situation. And I think California, they were attracted to, you know, the weather uh, her mom, Best, had some friends out in California, so I think it was just sort of a natural move for them. Okay. And in sort of classic Hollywood fashion, or again, maybe this is the first of the Carol Lombard uh, legends, she's a, a tomboy playing baseball outside, and Alan <laughs> Dwan happens to see her, and it might as well be yeah. Schwab's Drugstore. He casts her in her first movie. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Carol, for you know, her entire life, she was very athletic and she's, yeah, she's playing baseball in the street. Uh, Alan Dwan allegedly was at a neighbor's house and he just happened to see her. I think he thought she was, uh, you know, very vibrant and very, I guess, charismatic for that's as much as he could tell. And he cast her in A Perfect Crime, which was released in 1921. And that was her first uh, ever acting role. Uh, she plays Monty Blue's little sister. Um, unfortunately, the film's lost, so I've never seen it. But um, from the publicity stills uh, that we have still available, it looks and sounds interesting, at least. Yeah. And then it's a few more years before she's actually uh, starts being cast in films. And I guess you just say she's she's a bit of a generic blonde type in in a few movies at Fox and elsewhere. 
and then mm-hmm. she and then she gets uh, a contract with Senate, and isn't quite a. I guess she's technically a Senate bathing beauty, but seems mm-hmm. to get more attention than one pretty quickly. Yeah, so she signed with Senate in 1927, and she was with him for two years. So until you know mid 1929, and uh, while she was with him, she made about 18 um, silent comedies. And uh, if if you watch them in as a whole, I've I've seen most of them. Um, she quickly rises in the ranks, and by the end of that ten years, she's you know basically like a, a little star in his in his acting troupe. Um, in some of her early films, she definitely plays that, you know, bathing beauty's role. She, her purpose is basically to be eye candy. Uh, but some of her later uh, silent uh, films with, with Max Sennett, she's uh, very physical. And, and you can sort of see how uh, in just that short amount of time, her, her comedic skills developed. Well, you point out that like in one of the films, she gets like, kind of a vignetted close-up to introduce her, which is a sure sign that somebody's more than just another uh, bathing beauty. Exactly. And I think another important component of that is very early on in her, um, in her contract with Max Sennett, she suffered a devastating accident. This was in uh, late 1927. And by all accounts, uh, her career would have been over. Uh, she suffered, she was in a car accident and she got, um, very severe, um, wounds on her face, basically from her eye all the way down to her, her nose and all across her cheek. And of course, as a up and coming starlet to have such a, you know, a scar, a huge scar on your face, it doesn't really do anything for, for you in your career. Um, so she was really concerned that that would sort of be an end to her contract. But thankfully, Max Sennett really gave her a lot of publicity um, uh, and really good roles, I think. And he was quite sympathetic to her and I guess saw her talent. Um, and so even in some of the early films from 1927, her, her Senate films in 1927, you can see she's singled out in some of the advertisements. So she's um, featured by name. She has a prominent place on the ads. So it's, it's very interesting to think about um, how Max Sennett really sort of, I don't want to paint him as some sort of hero, but really did uh, help her a lot in her career in those well, early days. Yeah, and as you point out, it's not like he's Frank Borzaghi and there's going to be loving, you know, atmospheric close-ups of her in, you know, in a romantic <laughs> role. This is Max Sennett and everybody's kind of in medium shot, you know, slugging each other or whatever else is going on. Exactly. Yeah, this is just, you know, slapstick. And she was there to, you know, show off her her body, her femininity, right? So uh, really having a facial scar in the, in the end of the day wasn't a, a huge deal for her. Yeah, it is always interesting. I just watched Vigil in the Night. And there's one place mm. in particular where it suddenly shows up and you can see very clearly a line across her cheekbone. Um, and I don't know if they just failed to to light it properly for this one shot or if that was a little bit deliberate to you know kind of show her suffering by that point in the movie or something but uh you know it, yeah. it's it's hidden very well after a certain point oh definitely yeah i mean there are very few unretouched shots 
available, but you can definitely in those, you can see just how noticeable it is. Um, and I think your, your point about vigil and night's a great one. Yeah, it definitely sort of adds a, a weathered or weariness to her face. I think that's in like the close up scene where she's sort of at like a window and she's crying and it's, sort of, it adds to, uh, the, the, the mood of that scene. Yeah. Definitely. The time, time has had some effect on her or whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. You have an interesting point about, you know, people often link her screwball career with her training under Max Sennett. But you make the interesting point <laughs> that, you know, for someone who was, you know, she didn't exactly go straight into screwball. You know, there's years between her last Senate film and the first thing where she's doing anything like that again. Uh, so, yeah, she goes to Paramount and... <laughs> Who is Carol Lombard in the Paramount days? I mean, she's in all kinds of movies. Yeah, Carol Lombard, in, so as I said before, she ended her career with her contract, I should say, excuse me, with Max Sennett in 1929. And she didn't make her first screwball comedy, which was 20th Century, until 1934. So you have this window of time where she signs first with Passe and then with Paramount, where she's basically the complete opposite of what, you know, most people know of her, right? She's not that screwball, zany uh, character. She's a glamour girl. She was very sophisticated and elegant. And she was cast in uh, various films to uh, emphasize that, uh, that star persona. So for example, like Man of the World and Ladies Man where, uh, with William Powell, who was her first husband, um, No More Orchids. Uh, no man of her own. And so she had a, a little bit more of a, uh, I wouldn't say regal, but sort of um, restrained star persona in comparison to her her late 1930s image. Yeah, it was interesting. I was, you know, I was thinking about that and what the what exactly those movies of that period are. I mean, they're certainly a form of sophisticated comedy. Um, yeah. and I think of some of that, I mean, in no man of her own, probably the best comic moment doesn't really belong to her. It's Gables when he's having to sit in her parents' parlor, you know, in, in the little town <laughs> yeah. and act like this is the best yeah. time he's ever had. And, you know, it's just <laughs> obviously bored out of his skull, but he's being nice about it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's. You, there is kind of the beginnings of screwball in those characters, though they're not screwball. Mm -hmm. But you have the sophistication without the like daffy comedy yet. Um, and obviously, you know, Powell and and Lombard both came out of that, you know, and wound up doing mm -hmm. My Man Godfrey. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean, tell me more about her, about what she's like in some of these movies. I think you you got right to the heart of it. There's a sort of refinement in the comedy and there's sort of like that little bit of maybe snarkiness that you get that's exaggerated in screwball, but without the, you know, the, the physical comedy aspect and sort of the, the, the broadness that you get with screwball. Um, Carol Lombard in those movies, she's very sassy, still like her later screwball uh, comedies, her characters are very sort of headstrong, almost stubborn. Uh, a good example of that is uh, No More Orchid. She plays a character named Annie Holt, and she is sort of courted by a character named Tony, played by Lyle Talbot, but she doesn't really want to 
necessarily admit that she's in love with him. So she's a little bit standoffish. She's kind of uh, keeps him at a distance. Um, and I think that element of like independence that you see in her characters in those early 30s films manifests itself in different ways in her later screwball work. Yeah. It's also interesting. I mean, I just watched no man of her own, so that's on my mind, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, she's a small town librarian who's, you know, desperate mm -hmm. for something exciting to happen in life. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. She's kind of horny and her parents yeah. can't really relate to that. Uh, but, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's just a kind of nicely realistic idea of her, mm -hmm. you know, int healthy interest in sex and desire for a little mm -hmm. independence and a little excitement. Um, that, yeah. that is may, you know, it's, it doesn't even feel pre-code cause it's not really naughty. It's just normal. Um, yeah. and it's just, I don't know, you know, that is kind of reaching toward a new type in, you know, in, mm -hmm. in movies at that time. Yeah, definitely. The ability to sort of be open about your sexual desires, I think is something that we, obviously it's more coded in screwball, but something that is then, you know, adopted by that genre. Um, and I think, yeah, no man of Thrones is a good example of that. Her character, Connie, she, you know, she definitely wants to escape her small town life, but also she's, you know, very clearly she wants to be with Clark Gable's character. Right. So, um, and she's not shy about that. Yeah. They make a nice couple, the two of them. Hope that worked out for them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, all right, so but yeah, maybe in some ways it's because Screwball can't come along until the production code shuts off other avenues, mm -hmm. um, and that's mm -hmm. where kind of the the daffy comedy comes in. I always remember I I was at something where with William K. Everson and someone asked a question about you know the physicality of whatever Screwball movie we had just seen as as if it was basically abuse. And, you know, maybe there are times that it gets over into that a little, but basically it's, it's, to me, it seems like women are sort of liberated to be wild and crazy on the screen, you know, that they can fall in pools That's for a great. laugh and stuff like that. And, you know, <laughs> and it's, and also that like everybody's id in, in the romance can come out. I mean, they can be beastly to each other in conventional terms because mm -hmm. it's a movie and you could kind of go crazy. Um, does that yep. seem, seems legit. I'm not being a caveman. About yeah, this. no, definitely. <laughs> no, I think, I think it was Andrew Sarris who said that screwball comedies like sex uh, comedies without the sex, right? So physical, physical comedy becomes that, um, that sort of uh, metaphor for uh, the sex that we're no longer able to to see explicitly. And screwball comedy in many ways, I think, despite the limitations of the code, it is very liberating for uh, a lot of the, the, uh, the female characters. They are able to express themselves uh, and their desires um, in ways that I think we hadn't seen before on the screen. Um, and so I think... Um, I think Screwball is sort of a, a wonderful period for for female characters in that it does uh, give us that sort of liberation. Yeah. And Carol Lombard is probably like the the, the, the pinnacle of that, yeah. right? Example no, there's number no one. Screwball comedian. 
exactly. No one is more physical and sort of outrageous and zany um, than than Carol Lombard. Right. I mean, there's just certain people who could do it and certain ones couldn't. I mean, there's no great screwball mm-hmm. comedy with Norma Shearer in it, for instance. And <laughs> and no. so, you know, it really gave, to me, it gave Lombard an opportunity to finally have a distinct personality. She wasn't just, you know, attractive, blonde, in, you know, in the mm-hmm. background or, you know, playing, what's the one, is it Hands Across the Table where she's like the, the hotel... Yeah. Uh, manicurist. Manicurist, yeah. right. I mean, which is, you know, a perfect example. I mean, you you've got to look good and present well to be a hotel manicurist, but you're still sort of a generic person. And she needed to find roles where mm-hmm. she could rise out of being a generic person, interchangeable with other people in the nail salon. Uh, and then that's, that's so that's definitely. 20th century, which, you know, frankly, mm-hmm. both of the characters are kind of monstrous in, but. <laughs> oh, they are. Yeah. But, it's a film that um, I think it took me a long time to really, warm up to at first I couldn't stand it but I think when I realized that they could be unsympathetic but I could still like them it it sort of made me appreciate the the film even more yeah still not one that I throw on for a casual evening when I'm you know a little tired from work (laughs) or something because because it's a workout oh it is uh, both Lombard and uh, John Barrymore, they, they put their entire beings into their performances. Uh, I mean, John Barrymore is just outrageous and it's, it's an incredible performance when you think about it. And Carol Lombard, uh, early when she was casting the film, um, allegedly she was a little bit uh, reserved in playing Lily Garland. She was kind of holding back. And uh, Howard Hawks allegedly um, pulled her aside at one point when he was realizing that he wasn't getting the performance that he wanted out of her. And he said to her, well, how would you react if someone talked to you the way Oscar talks to Lily? And she allegedly said, well, I'd kick, I'd kick him in the balls. And that was sort of <laughs> a motivation for her to sort of dig deep into herself and sort of find that that energy that she does bring eventually to that performance. Did she follow that? I don't really know what all she did in that middle period. I mean, obviously other screwball comedies follow, but are there like three, (laughs) you know, three women's weepies in between uh, 20th century and my man Godfrey or things like that? Oh yeah. So after 20th century, she goes back to playing the types of roles that she had uh, before. So she made, Immediately following that, she made Now and Forever, uh, which uh, she co-stars with Gary Cooper and Shirley Temple. Uh, she played uh, the next film, Lady by Choice, then The Gay Bride. The Gay Bride's a very unusual film for her. Uh, it was the only film she made at MGM. She plays sort of a, 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 an actress. She's engaged to a, a gangster, basically. It's an, it's an unusual film. She always said it was her least favorite um, of, of the films that she made. She made uh, Rumba, which was the uh, follow-up film with George Raft to Bolero. And then she got back more in steadily to screwball comedies. So she made basically uh, one screwball comedy after another from late 1935 all the way through to 1938. Yeah, which is like things like My Man Godfrey, The Princess Comes Across. Mm-hmm. And eventually, nothing sacred. Yeah, audiences did not like 
20th century, but did they eventually come to like any of these other... I mean, they must have taken to her in this new kind of woman after a while. Oh, definitely. And I think that later on after that that peak of that screwball period that actually uh, was a disadvantage for her because she became so closely associated um, as that you know that screwball woman by the time she ventured off into making dramas in the late 30s and into the early 40s audiences were kind of turned off by uh, that new version of Carol Lombard they wanted more screwball they didn't want to see her in dramas so in a way I think it Dribble kind of typecast her and it was a benefit in that it brought her a lot of success and fame, um, but it really limited her in the types of roles she was able to play later on in her career. Well, yeah, I mean, looking at something like Vigil in the Night, I mean, I felt mm-hmm. it was sort of like what you see, I should say what it is, she plays a nurse uh, and in a, mm-hmm. in British hospitals is sort of low rent British hospital. Uh, the most interesting part of the movie is that the benefactor of the hospital sexually harasses her. I thought that was actually fairly, fairly fresh and, and well done in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, just how grimy that makes her feel and things like that. Um, but generally it's, you know, it's one of those hospital movies and she's a noble nurse who's self-sacrificing in all kinds of ways. And, I feel like what often ha- what often happens with com- comedians who play a serious role is they lose what's interesting about them as comedians and don't necessarily have something to bring back to it. And obviously, some eventually mm-hmm. figure out how to play serious roles and bring it an edge from their comedy. But I don't know if that she quite mm-hmm. does that. Yeah. So there, she made four dramas back to back from 1939 and 1940, and Vigil Night being one of them. Um, they're not necessarily my favorite um, by any means, but I think it's because she's so good at screwball comedy, there's sort of like an effortless quality about her performances and that she's very charismatic and charming um, and really sort of headstrong and independent. So to see her play these more demure women, well, I think her performances are generally great it's uh, they're not as strong as her comedies i think she does ultimately excel in comedy as you say right yeah it's interesting I mean, she does uh, her only hitchcock film at that time uh mr and mrs smith mm-hmm. which is kind of a dud i mean it's unfortunate that it's hitchcock trying to do yeah. straight up comedy because i would have loved to know what she could have done in one of his adventure films which obviously are strongly informed by comedy but you know have a more dangerous edge to them you know put her in you know not not something like suspicion but something that has more of a uh, strangers on a train notorious dark edge to it that would have been really interesting to see oh i'd love to yeah to see her as a hitchcock blonde definitely and my man or sorry mr mrs smith um I think Hitchcock even said he didn't understand the characters in the film. Um, and so basically just, he agreed to the project because Carol Lombard requested him to direct. But I think you can kind of get the sense that it's just, uh, he's going through the motions a little bit. It's lacking character. Right. It doesn't have a MacGuffin. That's what the problem is. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the subtext of a Hitchcock movie made the main text. And so 
It doesn't. Exactly. It's yeah. stretched too far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then she ends with uh, Lubitsch and a film that mm-hmm. most people now think is pretty great, To Be or Not To Be. Oh, yeah. It's it's my favorite of her films. I think she delivers such a strong performance. I think she really fits in well with Lubitsch's um, brand of sophisticated sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of comedy um, and it's it's a delightful film and I think I, I always play it in my classes um, and I'm always so happy that my students still really uh, receive it so well all these years later. Yeah, I watch it with my son who, you know, attempts to get him to watch other Lubitsch things had completely failed. I think, you know, seeing the people in evening dress on the box of like design for living or whatever just didn't do, <laughs> do it for him, but he he went with no. this one uh and liked it a lot. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting too that it's like a return to the basic setup of 20th century, you know, Jack Benny is the ego- mm-hmm. e- egotistical actor and you know, she's she's the, you know, sort of com- you know, self-parodyingly grand actress and, and all that. But mm-hmm. but it's easier to take, certainly, than 20th century is. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not as... It, it doesn't have that sharpness of 20th century. The characters are a little uh, more refined, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. Well, and, and they're just, you know, Benny's... You know, Joseph Turr may be an egotist, but in a more likable and, you know, comic way. Mm-hmm. It's just not as terrifyingly psychopathic as, as Oscar Jaffe. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and I think the, the same goes for, for Lombard's character, Maria Tura. Uh, she's um, egotistical, but in a sort of still a charming way. Let's talk about, I mean, she was married twice to famous actors, but she has one famous marriage, obviously, to Clark Gable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking about how much she's defined by her publicity uh, all through her career. That is certainly a big part of it, that, you know, the Gable and Lombard myth is, you know, so defining of her. It is, and I am always careful to... Uh, remind people just how much of that is a myth. Um, at the end of the day, so much of what we know about their their marriage is based on that fan magazine discourse. So we always, as I said before, you have to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. Uh, there was a both of them were incredibly popular individually, and when you put them together, they were you know like a mega couple basically. So there was a, definitely a financial incentive for the studios and for the fan magazines to um, really uh, give them ample publicity as a star couple. And I think in that Carol's identity kind of gets lost, especially, you know, post 1939, which is the year they got married. You see some articles referencing her as Mrs. Clark Gable and that's always a little infuriating to me because uh, <laughs> yeah, she's not, she, I mean, she was legally, of course, but I mean, this was an actress who was at in the late 1930s, the highest paid star in the industry. She was a freelance worker. Uh, she made, you know, dozens of movies and to reduce her just to be, you know, Clark Gable's wife is it's, uh, frustrating. Um, all right. So then of course, sadly she died. Um, what do you think mm-hmm. she would have done in the years to come? I mean, 
doesn't seem like drama was necessarily the most promising thing for her, but as she got Mm -hmm. older, neither might comedy have been. So who knows? No, definitely. I, and that's going back to what we were talking about earlier is when you read interviews, when she was posed that question, depending on the the outlet, she gives a very different answer. So, um, she said on occasion she wanted to be, you know, a businesswoman, a director, a producer. She's also said that she wanted to retire and just be, you know, Clark Gable's wife and have babies. So I think she, I don't know how she would have survived, you know, aging in Hollywood. She was 33 when she died. And I think probably by, you know, unfortunately, maybe hitting around 40, she would have had to start dealing with that uh, more directly. So I think she, She's been work. She worked for almost her entire life. So I think, in whether she would have stayed an actress or not, she would have maybe switched, you know, to producing or maybe even, you know, television. Who knows? So what do you think is important about looking at her story now, especially given that we only have sort of a refracted view of her story through the fan magazines and stuff like that? What does it tell us? Um, I think, well, the, the the main sort of theme that runs throughout my book, and one thing that I always try to emphasize is that while she was a screwball comedian, and that's the genre that she certainly excelled in and is best uh, remembered for, she was also much more than that. She had a very complex star persona and life and career um, outside of screwball comedy. She, um, she was... Uh, very talented um, in, in, as a performer um, and an equally complex human being. So um, I think to keep screwball comedy um, as just one aspect of her uh, larger story, I think is important to, to think about whenever you re- uh, watch any of her films. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber. Let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous. Let's misbehave. When Adam won his hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little lovebirds. We're not above birds. Let's misbehave. Becoming Carol Lombard's Stardom, Comedy, and Legacy is out now from Bloomsbury Academic Press. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. That's Jane Russell, starlet, full-figured then and full-figured now. And today we gals know how to keep our full figures looking pretty. Under the smoothest fashions, try the Playtex 18-hour seamless bra. That commercial was probably the first I ever heard of Jane Russell. And... Well, I was 13 or something, and it kind of got me thinking about stuff. But in that, I was just following in the footsteps of Howard Hughes, who devoted a decade to making and releasing a movie, The Outlaw, built around Jane Russell's full figure. In Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, biographer Christina Rice explores how Russell took charge of her image and made herself a star for more than what Hughes saw in her. 
Rice, the author of a previous biography on Anne Dvorak, starts by telling us how Dvorak nearly drove her out of writing biographies, but Russell brought her back. I worked on the Anne Dvorak book for around 15 years. I I started it when I was in my early 20s and didn't know really what the heck I was doing. And I kind of had like all of life's milestones, like graduated from college, got a master's degree, you know, started a career, got married, bought a house, had a baby. All of those things happened while I was writing you're working on this Anne Dvorak book. And Anne Dvorak Um, was with you every step of the way. She was absolutely with me every step of the way. That was, you know, I I was once dating a guy and we were talking about moving in together and he said, you know, if we do, we're going to have to cut back on the amount of Anne Dvorak posters (laughs) hanging up. And I I broke up with him like the next week. So yeah, Anne was there. You know, my husband, the man I did marry, we actually got married on um, an estate that Anne Dvorak had built in the 1930s. I became friends with the owner and he let us get married there. So yeah, Anne was, was, so it, it ended up being just this very, very personal kind of exhausting project. So that when it came out, I thought, Ugh, okay, I've done that. I don't need to do yeah. that again. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and ha- having, you know, writing a book is, you know, it, it, it is a, a kind of a slog and a struggle. Having had written a book is super cool. I'm in the first part myself, you know, I'm looking forward to the second part. But the uh, second part's exhilarating. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, after some time passed and, you know, and a little bit of distance from, from the Anne Dvorak book, I thought, well, gosh, may, maybe I can do this again. Um, at least I know how to do it now because I didn't really know how to do it before. And, you know, in the meantime, I, I, I became a librarian in the middle of, of all of that. So, you know, I'm pre- pretty good at research now. Um, and I, I didn't really know who to write about. And, you know, so I, I went to my publisher and said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this again. And I, I don't know, do, do you have anybody in mind? And, and they were the ones who suggested Jane Russell. And I, I was really surprised to see that nobody had written a book about Jane, except for Jane. She had written her autobiography in the 80s. And yeah, what, what I find so fascinating about her was that she was somebody who I absolutely knew and who a lot of people knew. She has a huge amount of name recognition, but not as much is known about her or her, her filmography. She, you know, People can say, oh, she's in The Outlaw and she's in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and she did a couple with Mitchum. Otherwise, they don't know. So, um, yeah, I went ahead and dove back in, and it was, you know, it, it was it was a very different experience than than, than Anne. So, yeah, it, it, it was fantastic. Well, I think too. I mean, she she isn't like typical Hollywood stars and and their stories about their lives in Hollywood, because she takes a third act turn, kind of back to her roots in religion and things like that. Besides doing the you know, the famous bra commercials. So, you know, it's like not a lot of built-in appeal for the typical Hollywood biographer, I think, in, you know, who she is in later life. But, you you know, you find that interesting, it seems. I have to admit, like, that that aspect of Jane, because, you know, she, she was, you know, a very religious person, and in her later years, you know, that kind of led her to, to be a little bit more right-wing, or a lot more right-wing politically. Um, that was something that gave me pause, and, and you know, I'm wondering if, if maybe that's why other writers didn't really tackle her, and... 
You know, I just thought that, uh, you know, that the rest of her life was so interesting that, that you know, I would be up for the challenge. And, I, you know, I, I, I tried to handle that aspect of Jane as objectively as I could and just let the reader draw their own conclusions. And, you know, I, I, I hope I was successful in that. Why can't she be a Scientologist like a normal star? No, she had to be Christian. <laughs> well, that, and, and like not even, yeah, and, and like speaking in tongues and like just really... <laughs> Yeah, Jane, Jane, you know, everything Jane did was, you know, Jane marched to the beat of her own drum. And even even that aspect of her life, Jane was was doing her own thing. Yeah, and probably not a lot of that in Malibu, I have to say, speaking in tongues. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, you know, she starts out with one of the most perplexing <laughs> careers. It must have been bizarre. I mean, the only one that's kind of more difficult and worse is her co-star poor Jack Butel who's totally screwed by you know Howard Hughes' way of making a movie over a decade but uh, I mean the outlaw I mean tell us you know she's famous for that she's the iconic image of that oh my god there's there's so much up with that movie I think I have like four chapters (laughs) of books (laughs) devoted to that to that movie you know I, I don't know if a movie has ever been so talked about and at the end of the day, so, you know, kind of borderline unwatchable. Um, <laughs> right. I'm, sure, I'm sure it does have its fans. Yeah, you know, it was, you know, it, it should have just been kind of like a very, like, competent Western directed by Howard Hawks. And, you know, Hawks had worked with Hughes in 1932 on Scarface, which, you know, turned out brilliantly. And, and a decade later, they, they teamed up again and, uh, you know, launched uh, a search for two unknowns. And that was how, you know, Jane and Jack Butel were, were selected out of, you know, many, many young hopefuls that um, auditioned for the role. And, you know, a few weeks into production out on location in Arizona, um, you know, Hughes, even though he was in Los Angeles, just was kind of trying to micromanage and tamper just a little bit too much. And that's not the, <laughs> that's not something Howard Hawks would put up with. So Hawks walked off the picture, production closed and moved back to Los Angeles. And Howard Hughes decided to direct it himself. And, you know, the the production isn't the production didn't last that long. I think Jane said it lasted nine months. And I don't, I don't even think it was anywhere near that, although he did end up doing retakes. He did end up taking like a, almost a full decade to release it um, widespread. So it, it had a premiere in 1943 in San Francisco and it ran for six or seven weeks. And then it had a little bit a little bit of a release through United Artists in 1946. It doesn't get widely released until 1950 when, when Hughes had the controlling interest in RKO. But this film, you know, he, he, Howard Hughes had hired Russell Birdwell who had done the campaign for the search for Scarlet for Gone with the Wind, so he was just a brilliant publicist, hired him to promote the film. And, you know, Birdwell, you know, largely focusing on Jane, like kept this movie like in the headlines and on the covers of magazines for just years and years and years. So it's just, you know, a brilliant marketing campaign. And, you know, that's where the title Mean, Moody, Magnificent, you know, the title of my book comes from a tagline for The Outlaw. And, you know, how would you like to tussle with Russell, which I still think is the greatest tagline of any film in Hollywood that, history. That's great. It's fantastic. That's up there with women fight for Conrad Veidt. So <laughs> that's a close second. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a film that people absolutely know about, and Hughes for a long time wanted the film to be Jane's screen debut. So she's just not making movies, you know, in the 1940s. You know, she, the, the Outlaw finishes shooting and. 
you know, like spring of 41 and she's just not on screens. And her, her nickname during that time period is the motionless picture actress because right. she's everywhere because <laughs> so many photos are taken of her. She's everywhere, but just not on screen. And, you know, throughout the entirety of the 1940s, she only has three movies released. So, you know, the outlaw young widow in 46 and then Bizarrely, she stars opposite Bob Hope in, in The Pale Face in 1948, which is just like a, a paramount picture. So it, it is a baffling career. And the fact that she was kind of able to overcome the decisions Howard Hughes made for her in the 1940s um, is pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, she could easily have been Faith Demurg or, or Vera Huber Ralston at that point, <laughs> but she did manage to actually have a career. Um, she did. Well, yeah. well, let's talk about. I mean, supposedly he discovered her when he was going to the dentist, and you established that that's pretty much bull. But it's that's her Schwab drugstore's story, um, you know. And she done some like training and acting and stuff like that but you know we all know why Hughes cast her and set about developing cantilevered bras for her and all that stuff did she take the time that no movies were coming out to actually get the training to be a, an act I mean she's a pretty good singer so actress and singer at that point or how did she recover from, from Hughes yeah yeah, <laughs> if she ever she fully recovered from Hughes, um, she she did she did have um, an acting coach that Howard Hughes actually assigned to her, and so she she worked with the acting coach and in in like forty two forty three, um, you know what she ends up doing after um, after the Outlaw premieres. Uh, in San Francisco and has that six-week run during that time period, her and Jack Butel are actually up there, like, doing, like, a, a, a skit, um, which kind of bombed, and then it turns into, like, a comedy routine where they're where they're playing, you know, straight men, man and woman to, to a comedian. So she's doing that in between the screenings of The Outlaw. You know, kind of hates it. Catches wind that Hughes is thinking about road showing the outlaw with just her because Butel's about to go into the military because this is 1943. So she actually ends up um, coming back to Los Angeles, elopes with her longtime boyfriend, Bob Waterfield, the football player. And when Waterfield and you know enlists in the army, she follows him to Georgia where he is stationed. So she actually walks out on her contract and Hughes suspends her. So, you know, she kind of plays housewife, um, you know, for, for, for a f- you know, few years, ma- makes the young widow. And I think during that time period is kind of bored out of her mind, you know, living the domestic life. And so I think that's when she kind of, you know, <laughs> starts like going back to Howard Hughes and saying, oh, well, well may- maybe this, this, this movie thing is what I want to do after all. Right. Um, so, but she didn't have, yeah, she didn't have a huge amount of, of acting training, but, you know, she, she got a little bit. And she also started you know, focusing on the singing career. So she actually does, you know, kind of develop um, like a singing act pretty early on, uh, like in the mid 1940s. And that's something she will do like right up until, um, you know, a couple of weeks before she, she dies in 2011. Yeah. We should point out that young widow is the name of a movie that she made, not a description of her status, uh, because no, they, not at all. <laughs> he, they, they remained married until 1968, I think. And, the, but even then he was just like screwing it up. Cause she made a movie with Frank Sinatra, and he wound up buying it for RKO and sitting on it for another year or two. 
Yeah, he did. He did that with with um, yeah with uh, Double Dynamite. Uh, that was with Frank Sinatra and Groucho Marx, and then she did a Western Montana Bell with George Brent. And he and the, both of those were made in the late 1940s. And Hughes, yeah, got control of them and shelved them both for a couple of years. And we should point out that Double Dynamite was another title for the movie that it was not produced under, but it was Hughes reflecting his usual obsessions with Jane Russell. <laughs> Completely, yeah. The movie was called It's Only Money, and yes, when it was finally released, it was Double Dynamite, and Hughes was, was not a fan of Frank Sinatra, even though it is Sinatra is absolutely the star. The posters feature Groucho leering at Jane, right? and that was totally Howard Hughes. Yeah. So the one that really did go well for her was The Pale Face. I mean, I'm sure to some extent it was stunt casting because it's a Western comedy, but she really rises to the occasion, and she and Hope not only became good friends, but they played off each other really well, and she's kind of the straight woman for him, but she she has a, you know, she can turn a comic bit pretty well, too, uh, you know, in a, in a slightly, a little sarcasm or something to it, a little bite to it. Um, is that basically where Jane Russell invents herself? Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I think it's, you know, the, the, the character, yeah, it, it does have that sarcastic bite, but I think that was like a little bit of reflection of Jane. Like she was infusing some of her own personality into the role. And th- those seem to be the roles where she excelled at the most. So, you know, like in, in the young widow, it's, it's like this, this hyper dramatic role and it's very earnest. And, you know, she's just playing it so straight that it just, you know, it, it, I don't think it makes a huge impression. And same with, with like Double Dynamite. She's playing kind of like the, the the simpering, sympathetic girlfriend. And that's just not who Jane was. Like Jane had, I think, so much personality in real life that when she had to contain it on screen, it just doesn't come off well. And so with Calamity Jane in the pale face, yeah, it is, she is a very kind of like no nonsense, take charge person. And it just plays, it just plays great. And she, she did model her character off of her husband, um, Bob Waterfield, who was nicknamed old stone face. Cause he was a pretty, you know, taciturn person. And so that's what she did. So when people said, Oh God, you're just so kind of, you know, stone faced in that role. And she goes, Oh good, good. That means I, I you know, I accomplished what I set out to do. The two that I watched most recently were Macau, which is not a very good movie, uh, and His Kind of Woman, which is a crazy movie. And I found out why it's crazy after reading your book. I mean, another one where Hughes came in and invented like six new endings, filmed all of them and shoved them together, basically, or something like that. And it just went on and on. Um, But in those, she kind of, I feel, kind of finds a, pretty good role for her which is the hard luck noirish a gal who's singing in some weird corner of the world and hoping for a break that looks further in the (laughs) on the horizon than ever um you know and again has that kind of sardonic edge to her and she does that pretty well I think she does that really well, and the, I think the, those types of roles are you know, almost like an extent, even though you know the, the pale face is a straight up comedy, and the, those other two are you know very dramatic. You know, I, I see you know it's it's almost like an extension of that role that she played. So, yeah, like she's able to you know she she really is kind of that guy's gal. You know, she's really kind of yeah. a dame in those movies, and you know she just has you know great chemistry with with Robert Mitchum, and and you know again she has that such a strong personality that she can stand 
toe to toe with somebody like Mitchum. Um, and I think they're, they're just absolutely electric on the screen. And yeah, I, I think Macau, I think Macau's beautiful. I think it is like a gorgeous movie to watch. Um, you know, maybe you don't need to turn the sound up so much. You can just look at it. But yeah, I mean, his kind of woman is, you know, I, you know, I just I, once again, like the outlaw, like journeying into the brain of Howard Hughes and not <laughs> quite understanding what's going on. But it's fun. It's fun yeah. to watch. <laughs> right. And it's like, I mean, by that point, she must have known if Robert Stevenson shows up on the set, you're in for a long shoot because he's he's apparently Hughes's go-to guy for when he fires the the first director and yeah to fix it. and yeah and, and Jane was Jane's not in a lot of the um the the, the tacked on scenes of his kind of woman so so she she was spared a lot of grief okay. but. Uh, but Vincent Price, you know, threw a, like one year anniversary of working on this movie party. And, you know, I think Mitchum by that time was pretty drunk because that's how he was able to cope with the, the endless <laughs> shoots on that film. She she kind of comes into her own at that point, despite all previous indications. And it's it was interesting to read. I mean, her, probably her most famous movie after The Outlaw, like you say, is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And it, by that point, here she was kind of the a sex joke just a few years ago. And now she's like the old pro who they bring in to kind of coach and help Marilyn Monroe through the process. I mean, she might, it must have been like the older sister looking at the younger one going through everything she's already been through. But uh... oh, a- a- absolutely, and you know, and I think one of Jane's like greatest strengths is that you know she she never really took herself that seriously. So I think you know, d- despite being this kind of internationally known personality, she was always pretty grounded, and she had a pretty strong support system. You know, so you know she was very close to her mom. She she grew up in the San Fernando Valley, um, you know, which is right there in Los Angeles. So she she knew people growing up that worked in the industry. So she she was never particularly starry eyed going into to the film industry. She had four younger brothers. So they never let anything go to her head. So, you know, I think she, you know, in the fact that she did get married so young and she, you know, she, she married a football player. I mean, you know, Bob Waterfield ended up being like a Hall of Fame quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. So I think, you know, kind of the, the Hollywood Wolves stayed away from her because she had this football player husband. <laughs> right. So. You know, so I, you know, I, I think she really kind of just weathered the ups and downs and pitfalls of the industry because um, she had, you know, she, because she was very self-possessed and, you know, because she had such a strong support system and kind of all these things that Marilyn didn't have. And so, you know, going into Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, you know, she was loaned out for that. It was Jane, it was finally her chance to work with Howard Hawks. It's, you know, over a decade after the outlaw didn't happen for the two of them. And, and she just had wanted to work with Hawks after that. And she just saw it as, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, technicolor, you know, picture at, at 20th Century Fox. It was a musical. It was just a, you know, a great role for her, to, you know, in some ways tailored for her. Cause they, you know, even though it was based on a Broadway show, the role was beefed up to accommodate her, her top billing. Um, so she knew it was a great opportunity and, you know, 
she saw this co-star, you know, in, in Marilyn, and and I think just saw that Marilyn didn't have as many kind of uh, emotional advantages that she had, and I think Jane wanted the movie to work. So yeah, so she absolutely was was a big sister to Marilyn, and just didn't have ego, and you know, did did what she could to to make sure that um that it worked for both of them. Yeah. Now through the whole decade, I mean, you talk about a lot more movies which seem to be convinced that Jane Russell's breasts are the key to movie riches. We get uh, Underwater, which I I love the story of them doing an underwater uh, premiere where people had to like snorkel down to watch the movie in a pool. <laughs> you know, which, which, or, or, or they could opt for the glass bottom boat if they didn't right. want to put the scuba gear on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's just crazy, and of course the the total subtlety of the uh, the advertising for that one too. It's like scuba action, aqua lung, you know, excitement or something, and you know, <laughs> aqua lung. Gee, what are you referring to there? You know, so yeah, uh, yeah. and then the French line, which got into all kinds of trouble because of her skimpy costumes and things like that. So yeah, I mean. That just wouldn't go away from her career. No, it, you know, it, it wouldn't, you know, because that, I mean, that's what Howard Hughes saw as, you know, kind of his, his bread and butter in, in promoting her. So, you know, she, she, you know, kind of swallowed it, at, at, I think, as best as she could. And she, you know, she, she understood that, you know, what, what was part of what she had to deal with in order to have this career. But she would, you know, draw the line sometimes with Hughes when she had to. So, you know, in the French line, that, that skimpy costume, as skimpy as that costume was, originally he wanted her to wear, you know, a, a bejeweled bikini. And she went on strike. She she walked off the set and would not return until there was some sort of compromise. And so that, that was a major victory because Howard Hughes was not somebody who heard no a whole lot. And, um, you know, after all of the the issue, you know, the, the French line was declared, you know, like a mortal sin by the Catholic, you know, the archdiocese in St. Louis. And, you know, and after all of that, she said, Howard, I'm not doing it anymore. Like, you are not going to put me in a film that has these issues. And, and he said, OK, I won't do it. Just don't tell anybody I, I, I agreed because I'll deny it. So you know, she would sometimes. But, you know, the fact that in the 70s, she spends like 10 years being the spokesperson for Playtex Bras. Again, I think speaks to Jane, you know, again, how she could she could laugh at herself and, and not always take herself that seriously. Yeah, she seems to have had kind of the same attitude toward her, toward her assets as Dolly Parton does. It's like, they're there, they're going to make me money, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, they're going to make me money. They're going to allow me, you know, they're they're going to give me the clout and allow me to do the things that I want to do in life. So, hey, let's just let, let's go for it. Yeah. <laughs> now, I did not know anything about her adoption issues. I mean, it's n- nothing unusual for a Hollywood star of that time to adopt their children. Um, but she was, you know, really pursued it as a I don't know, as a cause with this organization called WAIF. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. So so Jane um, did adopt three kids. So her, her first, her, her daughter, she adopted here in the United States without too much difficulty. And then, you know, when she went to adopt her second child, um, 
there was going to be a really long wait list, um, you know, and so she she wanted to move along a little bit quicker, and so she um, went to Europe. She she was invited, you know, for a command performance for the Queen, and while she was there, she visited some orphanages, which this is in 1951, I think, and so the orphanages are, you know pretty full from you you have just a lot of there there's like refugees and you know the orphans from the wars and whatnot but because um there were like immigration quotas in the United States and you know just there were a lot of barriers to adopting internationally and so you know as she's touring the orphanages she's getting a lot of press coverage and she's saying yes I would like to adopt a child and you know having this difficulty and so a Irish woman um comes to her hotel with a three-year-old boy and says, I can't care for him. Can you give him a better life? And, you know, Jane, you know, with help, like gets all the proper documentation to take this boy out of England, but it causes an absolute like international uproar and, you know, parliaments, you know, getting involved. And because parliament, parliamentarians are mad, the FBI feels obligated to, you know, open up a case on her. And, you know, ultimately she is able to, to, to adopt the child, but, the whole thing left such a bad taste in her mouth that you know she she decided to to use her celebrity to do something about it. So she started WAIF, um, which ended up um, being the fundraising arm for an organization called International Social Services, and you know they they facilitated international adoptions, and you know then she sought out um, legal reforms uh, to make international adoption um, less restrictive, and so this was something she was you know, involved in for over 40 years, um, you know, she, uh, I think, used all of her clout and all of her celebrity. And that's what we were talking about, kind of like using her assets for what she wanted to do. Right. That was waste. And so she put up with a lot from Howard Hughes um, because it enabled her to advocate for WAIF. And at one time, like they had chapters all over the country and, you know, they, you know, they kind of played a role in placing like tens of thousands of kids, you know, later on when they became a nonprofit in the seventies, they kind of focused on the foster care system here in the United States and she would go lobby Congress. So, you know, it wasn't just a celebrity, you know, putting their name on something to, you know, look glossy and, and get a tax write-off. I mean, it was something that, that she was very, very much involved in. And I think absolutely you consider it her, her life's work. Reading her whole story, I mean, she did pretty well for a Hollywood star. You know, she, she didn't go crazy. I mean, she, she was apparently kind of a hard drinker for a while, but didn't wreck everything and, and did some good and approached her career with a fairly level head for someone who was pretty naive when they went into it. I mean, it, I found it a positive story, which a lot of these are not. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, she, she certainly had her ups and downs. And I think, you know, tragically, her her second husband um, passed away two months after they, they were married. And so that, that was something that, you know, really destroyed her in many ways. And I don't know if she ever completely recovered from it. But no, overall, like, you know, compared to, you know, just some of these just kind of like heartbreaking, like crash and burn Hollywood stories, I, I don't think this is one of those at all. Yeah. So you kind of like Jane Russell by the end? 
I did. I mean, I'm cer- you know, certainly perplexed by her sometimes and <laughs> frustrated by her. But I felt the same way with Anne Dvorak. By the end, yeah. it's like, oh, Anne. What? But you know, at the end of the day, I mean, she's you know, she she is a larger than life personality on movie screens, but she's also a human being. So, <laughs> yeah. so we're, we're all perplexing and frustrating. But <laughs> I, yeah, but at the end of the day, oh yeah, like I I, I had a lot of fun writing. Like I, you know, Anne, I, I guess I had fun writing writing about Anne Dvorak, but it was also exhausting. And no, with Jane, I, I just had a great time. And, and I really loved getting to know her on film, you know, beyond Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and The Outlaw. Um, you know, some of her films like Foxfire and The Tall Men and like even Cauliflower Cupids, which was this, this wacky movie she made in the 60s. Um, I think she's just fun. Like she's fun to watch. Like she was truly a movie star. Whenever a doubt appears, your future with me will continue to be kisses and tears. Kisses and tears, that's all our love is. It's nothing but kisses and tears. When I kiss you, there is no reaction. You're too busy with addition and subtraction. Mean Moody Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend by Christina Rice, is out now from University Press of Kentucky. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Rob Stone, Olympia Kiriakou, and Christina Rice, and to Shireen Muyadeen, Elizabeth Morris, and Jackie Wilson. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Once that was a forest. Then it became a trail. Then a town. And someday it'll be a city. Yeah, that's what I like, progress. And I'm not making any.